Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon in English study group, and we're studying the words of the Buddha in this book titled The Realms of Existence. It's volume 11 of our book series, which is titled The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment, Revealing the Hidden. This particular book helps you to start to understand the realms of existence and the cycle of rebirth. We've been studying the various realms, and today we're going to be studying more about the animal realm, a bit about the afflicted spirit realm, and then starting to move into understanding the human realm as well. So I'd like to welcome all of you today. We're going to be studying chapters 41 through 50. And as I typically do, I would like to invite anybody who's in Zoom, if you guys would like to read the chapter, then what I'll do is I'll share some teachings on that chapter and then open up to any questions that you guys might have, whether you're in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. You can ask questions by putting that into the comment section of Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Or in Zoom, you can raise your hand electronically and ask any questions that you like. As I go forward, if anybody in Zoom would like to volunteer to read, you can just electronically raise your hand and I'll be able to see that and then you're welcome to read. Otherwise, I'll go ahead and start reading the chapters and then I'll share teachings on that and then I'll open up to any and all questions that you guys might have. So here, this is chapter 41. Oh, okay, Tonka's going to volunteer to read. Go ahead, Tonka. There you go. Terrible and harsh prison of hell and prison of animal realm. So too monks, when one does not have confidence in cultivating wholesome qualities, when one does not have a sense of moral wrongdoing in cultivating wholesome qualities, when one does not have moral concern in cultivating wholesome qualities, when one does not have energy in cultivating wholesome qualities, when one does not have wisdom in cultivating wholesome qualities, in the noble one's discipline, one is called a poor, impoverished, needy person. Having no confidence, no sense of moral wrongdoing, no moral concern, no energy, no wisdom in cultivating wholesome qualities, that poor, impoverished, needy person engages in misconduct by body, speech, and mind. This, I say, is his getting into debt. To conceal his bodily misconduct, to conceal his verbal misconduct, to conceal his mental misconduct, he, nourish, uh, he nurtures an evil and wholesome desire. He wishes, let no one know me. He intends with a desire, let no one know me. He speaks statements with a desire, let no one know me. He makes bodily endeavors with a desire. 
let no one know me. This, I say, is the interest he must pay. Well-behaved fellow monks speak thus about him. This venerable one acts in such a way, behaves in such a way. This, I say, is his being advised. When he has gone to the forest, to the foot of a tree, or to an empty dwelling, evil and wholesome truths are accompanied by remorse attack him. This, I say, is his prosecution. Then, with the breakup of the body, after that, that poor, impoverished, needy person who engaged in misconduct by body, speech, and mind is bound in the prison of hell or the prison of the animal realm. I do not see amongst any other prison that is as terrible and harsh and such an obstacle to attaining an unsurpassed security from bondage, enlightenment, as the prison of hell or the prison of the animal realm. Okay, thank you, Tonka. So remember that the Buddha is teaching the natural laws of existence. He's helping you understand this cause and effect or action and result, the results of your decisions. He's not giving you teachings to believe. He's not trying to guilt, shame, or fear you into doing anything. He already attained this peaceful, joyful mental state. He's helping you to understand how he accomplished that and providing you the guidance of not the way that the world should be, but he's explaining to you the way the world is. So this cycle of rebirth is the way that the world is, and you can actually independently confirm the cycle of rebirth that it's true. You're not to believe the cycle of rebirth or these realms of existence, but you can independently verify it depending on what your experiences have been in life. And if you understand how to independently verify it, you can actually accomplish that. And the Buddha here is describing about this hell realm and the animal realm and how this is a prison. And he talks about this in other parts of his teachings, essentially how it's very challenging to ever get out of those realms once one is in those realms. But those realms aren't permanent. An individual can ultimately make their way out of those realms. But the way that one gets into those realms is through what the Buddha is describing here. What he's saying, this first paragraph here, he's saying that when you lack confidence, meaning confidence in cultivating these wholesome qualities and confidence in his teachings to be able to cultivate these wholesome qualities, when you lack this moral wrongdoing, what moral wrongdoing is, is this is where you understand what's wise and unwise about the natural law of gamma, that you have wisdom of this natural law. So when you lack moral wrongdoing of cultivating these wholesome qualities, and then you lack moral concern, which the concern is, once you understand what's wise and unwise, having concern to not do things that are unwise, that you're disinterested in causing harm to others. Because if you understand the natural law of gamma, that you understand any harm that you put out, harm is going to come back to you. So, you would need to cultivate this on your journey to enlightenment. But here the Buddha is talking about an individual who lacks this. Then he's talking about this individual who lacks energy. What he's referring to here is the initiative, the willingness to do something, the motivation, the encouragement, the ambition. If you're missing that, then you're going to be complacent. You're going to be dull and lethargic. You're not going to be interested in cultivating wholesome qualities because it's really challenging as you're getting going on the path to enlightenment to train the mind to 
cultivate this wisdom and then actually conduct yourself in a way that is wise. So you're going to need to maintain your determination, your dedication and your diligence to have ambition and motivation and encouragement on the journey to enlightenment. So one is going to need to cultivate this energy. This enlightenment factor of energy is what's going to help propel you through your journey to enlightenment that you don't get dull or lethargic or complacent. And then the Buddha talks about when one doesn't have wisdom, that they haven't cultivated the wisdom to learn, investigate, examine the teachings, to then reflect on them, to independently verify them, and then practice them. That's where your wisdom is coming from. He's essentially helping you to see this perspective that when you lack these things, that you're poor and impoverished and needy, right? Oftentimes we think about somebody in this respect based on finances, that if you have a lot of money, that you must be wealthy. And if you have less money, then you're poor, impoverished, or needy. But the Buddha is showing you just the opposite. He's helping you to see a different perspective here, that what a poor, impoverished, and needy person is, is someone who lacks confidence, who lacks moral wrongdoing, that understanding of what's wise and unwise, one who lacks this moral concern, which is an interest to not cause harm to others. When one lacks energy or they're complacent and they don't have this ambition and enthusiasm to do what is wise. And when they lack wisdom, this person is poor and impoverished. That's what the Buddha is helping you to see that perspective. And then he goes on with this kind of analogy to help you see that, okay, when someone has no confidence no moral wrongdoing, no moral concern, no energy, and no wisdom, that then they engage in this misconduct by body, speech, and mind, essentially making unwise decisions that is putting harm out into the world. And now the Buddha is saying this is like going into debt. Because if you understand the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect and action and result, and anything unwise that you do that is going to produce unwholesome results, you're going to experience the results of that at some point, either in this life or some future life. The goal would be to extinguish your unwholesome gamma so that you can only then produce wholesome gamma and you can experience the enlightened mind in this life. But if you are lacking the confidence, the moral wrongdoing, moral concern, the energy and the wisdom, you're going to be making unwise decisions based on the unknowing of true reality. And now you're causing harm through your bodily, verbal and mental conduct. And those things that you're causing harm with, you're going to need to experience them. That unwholesome result is going to come back to you for all of those things. So that's why the Buddha is saying you're going into debt whenever you're performing things that are unwise in the world. Then this individual might try to conceal their bodily misconduct, their verbal misconduct, or their mental misconduct, not interested in letting other people know what they're doing. And the Buddha is saying this is like having to pay interest. Then what occurs is an individual starts to notice that people are going to start maybe gossiping about you. That's what the Buddha is essentially saying here. The Buddha is talking about well-behaved fellow monks. This is somebody might try to provide you guidance or suggestions or help in order to learn how to improve your moral conduct, your bodily, verbal, and mental conduct. And the Buddha is saying this is like being advised. But then he's saying, okay, when you go out somewhere alone, here he's talking about the forest, the foot of a tree, or an empty dwelling. He's saying these evil, unwholesome thoughts essentially attack you, right? Like if you've ever sat somewhere on your bed or in your living room, or you've gone out to a park, or you've just been alone, those unwise things that you've done in the past, those thoughts might attack you, and you might feel remorseful for the things that you've actually done in the past. This is 
what the Buddha is calling your prosecution, right? And then he's saying, okay, with the breakup of the body after death, this individual who's engaged in misconduct by body, speech, and mind, they're bound for this prison of hell or animal realm. Right? He's just explaining the natural laws of existence of what's truly happening so that then with this wisdom, you can make wiser decisions that's going to lead to improved results for your life. He's not trying to guilt, shame, or fear you into anything. He's just explaining to you very clearly, very straightforwardly, you know, what is actually occurring. Then he says, okay, I don't see any prison that is more terrible and harsh that is an obstacle to attaining enlightenment as the hell realm and the animal realm because in those realms you can't cultivate your mind to the point of getting to enlightenment so this unsurpassed security from bondage this is the enlightened mental state because this mind in the unenlightened state with the fetters it's bound up it's got these pollutions or these taints or these fetters and it's all bound up you know somebody disrespects you maybe you get angry and bitter and harsh and hostile your mind is uncontrolled so you can get this unsurpassed security from bondage, which is enlightenment, where now your mind's not bound up. Somebody says something disrespectful, you can reside peaceful and joyful. You still might choose to not associate with that person for one reason or another, but you don't have any painful feelings. So getting reborn into these lower realms of hell, the animal realm, and afflicted spirit realm is actually like a prison. But the Buddha refers to hell in the animal realm like a prison because it's so challenging to get out of those realms. It's very challenging to move from an animal existence into a human existence. You're going to see that today in the discourses that the Buddha shares. Ultimately, those beings will be able to make their way to other existences, but they oftentimes need to be reborn countless times in the animal realm to ultimately get to something like an elephant or a rabbit or a turtle where they're not causing so much harm. They're not having to kill in order to sustain their life, like a tiger, a lion, a snake. These beings need to kill repetitively in order to just survive. So this is why their lifespan is very short and they tend to need many rebirths before they ultimately get to a point where they can experience rebirth in the human realm. This existence in the human realm is the ideal existence to be able to get to enlightenment. But here the Buddha is just explaining to you what you experience. If you've ever been somewhere where you've been alone and you've experienced these unwholesome thoughts that of unwise things that you've done in the past kind of invading your mind, then you can independently reflect on this and through your own direct experience, see what the Buddha is saying is, yeah, this is true. And one of the reasons why the Buddha knows all these things is because he experienced them himself. He knows that this is indeed what occurs. So by improving your moral conduct through cultivating wisdom of the natural law of gamma, you won't experience this invading of your thoughts and all the other challenges that the Buddha is talking about here which includes rebirth into hell or the animal realm. And that's what the path to enlightenment is all about, is about becoming this better and better human being so that you're not needing to be reborn into the lower realms, that potentially you'll get to enlightenment in this life, but if for some reason you don't, that there can be an improved rebirth, either in the human realm or potentially into the heavenly realm. But remember, none of these existences are permanent. The ultimate goal is to escape this whole cycle in cultivating the confidence in the Buddha and his teachings, cultivating a sense of moral wrongdoing, knowing what's wise or unwise, cultivating this moral concern, which is 
not being interested in causing harm to other beings, cultivating this energy or this motivation, this encouragement, this ambition, this initiative, this willingness to do something, and cultivating wisdom about these natural laws is what's ultimately going to guide you to this enlightened mental state. So let me know what questions you guys have here. You can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Or in Zoom, you can raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to move into the next chapter, which is chapter 42. And I'll just remind all of you guys in Zoom that anytime you'd like to read, feel free to raise your hand and you're welcome to read any of these chapters. Okay, chapter 42 is titled, okay, there you go, Donnie. Go for it, sir. Few animals are reborn among human beings or happening beings. What do you think, monks? Which is more? The little bit of soil in my fingernail or the great earth? Venerable sir, the great earth is small. The little bit of soil that the perfectly enlightened one has taken up in his fingernail is insignificant. Compared to the great earth, the little bit of soil that the perfectly enlightened one has taken up in his fingernail is not calculable, does not bear comparison, does not amount even to a fraction. So too, monks, those beings are few who, when they pass away from the animal realm, are reborn among human beings. But those beings are more numerous who, when they pass away from the animal realm, are reborn in hell, in the animal realm, in the realm of afflicted spirits. For what reason? Because monks, they have not seen the four noble truths. What for? The noble truth of discontentedness, the noble truth of the cause of discontentedness, the noble truth of the elimination of discontentedness, the noble truth of the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. Therefore, monks, an effort should be made to understand this is discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the cause of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the elimination of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. What do you think, monks? Which is small? The little bit of soil in my fingernail or the great earth? Vulnerable sir, the great earth is small. The little bit of soil that the perfectly enlightened one has taken up in his fingernail is insignificant. Compared to the great earth, the little bit of soil that the perfectly enlightened one has taken up in his fingernail is not calculable, does not bear comparison, does not amount even to a fraction. So too, monks, those beings are few who, when they pass away from the animal realm, are reborn among the heavenly beings. Because these beings are more numerous who, when they pass away from the animal realm, are reborn in hell, in the animal realm, in the realm of afflicted spirits. For what reason? Because monks, they have not seen the four noble truths. What for? The noble truth of discontentedness, the noble truth of the cause of discontentedness, the noble truth of the elimination of discontentedness, the noble truth of the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. Therefore, monks, an effort should be made to understand this is discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the cause of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the elimination of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. Okay, thank you, sir. 
So here, this discourse starts out with the Buddha using this analogy, which he typically uses when he's comparing two things that are greater or less than each other about the soil under his fingernail. He's asking his students, what is more, right? The great earth or this soil under his fingernail? And of course, the monks, his students reply, oh, the great earth is so much more significant and the number and the amount of soil under your fingernail is incalculable uh, compared to the great earth. And then the Buddha uses that to help them understand that, okay, so too, the number of beings that pass away from the animal realm that are reborn into the human realm is very few. And more likely, an individual that is in the animal realm is going to be reborn into hell, the animal realm, or afflicted spirits. So the vast majority of human beings that are in the human realm, we have been in the animal realm at one time or another, but we've made it to the human realm. There's trillions and trillions and trillions of beings, and there have been trillions of beings in the animal realm at different times. The animal realm is gradually shrinking. Scientists tell us that 99% of the animals that once existed no longer exist. There's only 1% that is still left. But out of that amount, there's still trillions and trillions of beings that are constantly being reborn. The 10 billion human beings that we have on the, or I'm sorry, the 8 billion human beings that we have on this earth is a mere fraction compared to how many animals are truly in the animal realm. But eventually those beings can make it to the human realm. But here you can see more likely they're going to end up in the hell animal or afflicted spirit realm. And then the Buddha explains the reason why. Because they haven't seen the Four Noble Truths. This is the very beginning teaching of the Buddha, the very first one that an individual will actually see and learn and understand when you're first getting on the path to enlightenment. It's so important to start with the Four Noble Truths. And this is where I start students on the Four Noble Truths when they first start learning with me. Because the Four Noble Truths explains the problem, which is discontentedness, those conditioned feelings of pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant. Remember, those are conditioned feelings based on some condition the mind is going to experience this feeling. So conditional happiness, for example, or excitement, it's unsatisfying because it's only conditional. That means you can only experience happiness when certain things are occurring. So the pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant is the problem. Then the cause of that problem is craving, desire, attachment, the longing, the yearning, the chasing, the wanting, the thinking the next new shiny object waiting around the corner is going to provide lasting satisfaction. So in the unenlightened mind, if you get what you want, you get pleasant feelings. But if you don't get what you want, you get painful feelings. That's the mind causing its own discontentedness. So if your mom does this, if your boss does this, if your bank account is this, if the weather is this, so forth and so on, then you're happy. But the problem with that is as your expectations and your wants grow, the amount of happiness that you can have becomes less and less and less and less. So when you eliminate your cravings, desires, attachments, your ability to maintain your peacefulness and joy expands and expands and expands because now you're getting to the unconditioned peacefulness and unconditioned joy where there doesn't need to be any particular condition met. If it's sunny outside, you're happy. But if it's not sunny outside, you're still happy because your happiness in the enlightened state is not based on the sun. So in the unenlightened state, if you base your inner feelings on something like the sun, 
because the sun is impermanent, it's only a matter of time before that changes, and now your mind ends up in the painful feelings. So the Buddha is explaining the cause of discontentedness in the Four Noble Truths. Then he explains the elimination of that is to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. And there are certain tools and techniques that he shares to be able to do that. And then the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness is the Eightfold Path. That's the complete perfect plan that will explain to you how to move your mind to the enlightened mental state. The Eightfold Path is a core central teaching that all the others plug into. And the Four Noble Truths plugs into that as the very first teaching on the Eightfold Path. So it's the Four Noble Truths that helps you have this breakthrough to finally understanding what's causing your mind to be discontent. As long as you don't understand what's causing your mind to be angry, sad, frustrated, irritated, annoyed, having guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy, displeasure, stress, anxiety, as long as you don't understand what's causing that, you'll never be able to fix it. And because the mind in the unenlightened state doesn't understand the Four Noble Truths, an individual will typically push a person away or a situation away because they're misunderstanding what the problem is. If you think the problem is external, then you'll tend to push a person or a situation away thinking that's going to solve the problem. But it doesn't because you get irritated or annoyed about something else. If that was the problem, then when you push that person out of your way, your mind would be peaceful and joyful. Or the other thing you might do when you misunderstand the problem is you might be bitter and harsh and hostile towards someone. Or the third thing you might do is you might put your expectations on someone, trying to control them to do things your way. But none of this actually works to get you to peacefulness and joy because you have the problem of craving, desire, attachment in the mind. That's what the real cause of the problem is. And when you understand what the cause is, then you can actually apply the tools and techniques and actually fix it. But without these Four Noble Truths, a being in the animal realm, as the Buddha is describing, they haven't seen these Four Noble Truths. They don't understand them. They can't practice them. So they're going to keep being angry and fearful and having all these other discontent feelings that are experienced. But once you start to understand the Four Noble Truths and you can have this breakthrough and then start practicing the Eightfold Path, then you can actually fix the problem. So that's why the Buddha is saying that an effort should be made. You need that energy, that determination, that dedication, that diligence to learn and practice and dial this in closer and closer. And that's what's going to actually lead to improved condition of mind in this life. And then should you need to be reborn, you can be reborn in improved destination, but potentially you can get to enlightenment in this life. There's no reason why you can't. But in the animal realm, they can't learn these Four Noble Truths. They don't have the capability to understand what's really causing their discontentedness. So the Buddha is explaining that they're more likely to not be reborn in the human realm, but into hell, animal realm, or afflicted spirits. But of course, some of those beings are going to make their way to the human realm. But that's not because that they 100% understand the Four Noble Truths at that point. It's because they've gotten into a certain existence where they're not killing so much or or maybe not at all or they're not maybe stealing or maybe they're not having sexual misconduct these are things that cause beings to experience a desirable rebirth so these natural laws of existence that the buddha taught that you're learning and practicing they affect you whether you're aware of these natural laws or not just like the natural law of gravity affects us whether we're aware of it or not the natural laws of existence affect you whether you're aware of it or not. So an animal is going to be affected by their killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, and any other unwise decisions that they're making. And that's why I mentioned that 
an animal who's killing, they'll tend to have a shorter lifespan, where an animal like an elephant or a turtle that doesn't kill so much, their lifespan tends to be much longer. And this is the natural laws of existence. So by making an effort to understand the Four Noble Truths, a being can have a breakthrough to finally understanding what the problem is in the unenlightened mind and then actually fixing it and solving it through applying the tools and techniques that the Buddha shares. And then the next part of this discourse is exactly the same thing that Donnie read previously about animals being reborn into the realm of hell, the animal realm, and afflicted spirit realm, and less likely to be reborn in the human realm. The same thing is true that they're less likely to be reborn in the heavenly realm. That's what the Buddha is explaining here. There are beings who move from the animal realm into the human realm and into the heavenly realm. This is what does occur. There's even beings who move from hell into the human realm or into the heavenly realm as well. But it's very rare for these things to occur. But it is occurring. You can actually see this. If you look at human beings, there's certain human beings that function very much like a hell being. If you understand what hell beings function like, there's human beings who function like an animal. There's human beings who function like an afflicted spirit. There's human beings who function like human beings. And then there's human beings who function like heavenly beings as well. Being on this path to enlightenment is to become more and more human. And this is the reason why when you get to the first stage of enlightenment, you're reborn back into the human realm, where when you're not in that first stage of enlightenment, there's the potential for you to be reborn in hell, the animal realm, or afflicted spirits. But by the time that you improve the condition of your mind through cultivating the mind, you can potentially experience an improved rebirth or ultimately get to enlightenment through moving through the four stages of enlightenment. And it's the Four Noble Truths, which is the very beginning of that. And the Buddha points to this multiple times in his teachings where you can study this in detail. Here, he's just pointing to it, kind of giving a summary and saying, okay, that's really what an individual needs to start with in order to learn the path to enlightenment. But in other teachings, you can see the real detail of how to actually understand these. You can reflect on them and you can practice the Four Noble Truths so that you can have this breakthrough to finally understanding what's causing your discontent feelings so that then you can actually eliminate them. So let me know what questions you guys have here. Remember, you can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere, so I'm gonna move on to the next chapter. Now we're moving into the afflicted spirit realm, starting to look at that because we looked at the animal realm quite a bit last class and then a little bit in this class, and now we're gonna start studying about the afflicted spirit realm. So this particular chapter 43, it's actually quite long, and the Buddha is explaining various experiences that he had of interacting with afflicted spirits. Some people refer to them as hungry ghosts or just ghosts. These are formless beings that exist in the world. And oftentimes we think about these realms as being in far distant places, but these beings are all in the same time and space. They're in the same plane. So the heavenly realm isn't like far, far, far away up in the sky and the hell realm isn't deep, deep, deep in the core of the earth. These hell beings are right here amongst an individual, or these heavenly beings are right here amongst you, as well as these afflicted spirits, these ghosts. Some people have actually had interaction with ghosts, so they've independently been able to verify that, yes, this is true, that these afflicted spirits or these ghosts exist. And here the Buddha is just explaining different experiences that he's had with these different individual 
beings that are in the afflicted spirit realm. So we don't necessarily need to read this, but this is how the Buddha actually discovered these various realms because he was either in those realms in his previous lives or he came in contact with beings who were in these particular realms. And that's why you have independently confirmed the animal realm and the human realm. You know that these are true, right? But if you've had contact with beings in the hell realm, the afflicted spirit realm, or the heavenly realm, then you know that those are true too. And there's ways to independently verify this as you would like to explore this. So I don't know that you guys have any questions here. You can see even in the description in the book, I put very little essentially the Buddha is just helping you understand this variety of beings that are in the afflicted spirit realm. So if you have questions on that, feel free to let me know. Maybe you've read that before class or something. You're welcome to let me know. Otherwise, I'm going to just go ahead and move on to chapter 44. Here, this is titled, Few Afflicted Spirits Are Reborn Among Human Beings or Heavenly Beings. This is exactly like the chapter that Donnie just read, but it's related to afflicted spirits, where the Buddha is using the exact same analogy, and he's saying the exact same thing, that it's very rare for an afflicted spirit to be reborn among the human beings, that it's very rare for beings to go into. Of course, that does happen regularly, but it's just more rare, right? And the reason why is because they haven't seen the Four Noble Truths. And then the same thing the Buddha describes here that it's rare for a being in the afflicted spirit realm to be reborn into the heavenly realm as well for the same exact reason of not seeing the Four Noble Truths, that it's much more likely that a being of the afflicted spirit realm is going to be reborn in hell, the animal realm, or the afflicted spirit realm. So getting into those lower realms is very challenging, but ultimately these beings will make their way through the cycle of rebirth with improved opportunities to be able to get to enlightenment. So it looks like Tonka, you have a question. Go ahead, ma'am. Yes, teacher David. I read uh, these chapters before, and uh, there was a sentence saying that uh, training of a horse would produce uh, rebirth in a lower round. So I was wondering, uh, I didn't see anything uh, so significant in training of a horse. So I was wondering if you can explain Sure. Why would it produce such a bad result? Sure. So here, the Buddha is saying yeah. uh, this mm -hmm. one, right? I saw a man <laughs> with body hairs of needles moving through the air. Those needles kept on rising up and striking his body while he let out cries of pain. Then the perfectly enlightened one dressed the monks thus. That being was a horse trainer in this same location. That's essentially a place. So training horses is a wrong livelihood. This is affecting one's moral conduct. You're coming in contact with animals. It's unwise to do this type of work because you can get hurt, you can get injured, you can get killed. There's all kinds of difficulties that can occur as a result of that. So that is one of those livelihoods where the Buddha teaches about having business and living beings where you're training living beings. And this is oftentimes how diseases come as individuals are interacting with animals. Diseases come into the human realm and this is causing all kinds of difficulties in the world. This is why people say that COVID came into the human realm as well. So this is why this particular individual is reborn into the afflicted spirit realm. There's a certain amount of craving there and interaction that an individual is having in this 
life as a human to interact with a horse and do that type of work. And then because of that lack of moral conduct, one can be reborn into a lower realm like afflicted spirit. So it's not just this one particular thing. The Buddha doesn't teach that kind of thing where like if you just do this one thing, then you're automatically going to be reborn into an afflicted spirit realm. He even talks about how it's would lead to madness or frustration if you tried to discern the exact, 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 exact result of gamma. But here, this is an indication that yes, this is a potential for someone who is a horse trainer to be potentially reborn in the afflicted spirit realm. Okay, so any business with meat uh, would be the wrong livelihood. I don't remember seeing anywhere that eating meat would produce such a bad result and as far as i know a lot of monks and i don't even know about buddha like if he ate meat so to me it seems uh, worse to eat meat than to train a horse yeah so again it's not that you're doing one particular thing and then it automatically produces rebirth or some particular thing but you can see the natural law of gamma the cause and effect or action result that by eating meat there are certain drugs hormones toxins and substances that you're ingesting and now this is causing sickness in this life and it causes difficulties in the digestion it even causes complications in the mind due to the substances that an individual is digesting so by ingesting any kind of animal flesh an individual is experiencing the results of those decisions whether or not that leads to rebirth into the lower realms or not that is a matter of the totality of everything that's going on in one's mind it's not just that one thing that is going to lead to rebirth into a lower realm that it's based on the condition of the mind at the time of death it's not like there's some being somewhere that's determining and judging whether you go to a good place or a bad place it's based on the condition of one's mind and if one is eating meat nowadays a lot of beings do eat meat because human beings move to meat. I think it was something like 20 or 50,000 years ago we started moving to meat where before that we were primarily uh, plant-based eaters. And then we ended up moving to meat out of necessity based on our population growing and we weren't able to sustain ourselves through the plants in the forest anymore. So we started scavenging. We started taking over hunts of animals that were killing like tigers and lions and stuff. We would get people together and we would kind of shoo away the lions and we would take over their hunt. But then we became so populous that we needed to learn how to do organized hunting ourselves, which then we started doing that. And then we became so populous that we started doing manufactured farming and stuff like this. And now we can see that this is causing all kinds of sickness and difficulties in the world with our environment and with our own human health. And now you see more people starting to move to plant-based food supply, which is essentially going back to what we were once doing long before we started eating meat. But this meat that we're eating for some people, it's going to be very challenging to move off of that because of one central desire people need to eliminate their central desire but also in some cases the body is really dependent on this meat so we're kind of like the first generation that's making this major shift you know 500 years from now a thousand two thousand years from now as more and more people are eating plant-based foods the human population can move to plant-based foods and there won't be so much issues but initially like this there's going to be some people who even get to enlightenment they might be eating a small amount of meat or eggs or cheese or something like that 
if an individual can get to a, a full complete plant-based food supply maybe using some supplements or things like this this would be advisable because you're going to get the longest life possible with the best opportunity to attain enlightenment but if an individual has some medical condition where they need to eat a certain amount of meat or the cheese or eggs or dairy or something like this this may occur for the next few generations until we have more and more people that are transitioning over to a plant-based food supply thank you very much mm -hmm. you're welcome okay let's go back down here as i was mentioning this chapter is very similar to what donnie was just reading and it's just applying to afflicted spirits here we have a question from Mayuli. She's asking, can afflicted spirits come in a form of animals? Yes, there's some afflicted spirits that they may have been an animal before. And now when they move into the afflicted spirit realm, they can actually be a ghost as an animal in that particular being. That is a possibility as well. Okay. So I'm not seeing any other questions anywhere. So let's move on to the next chapter which this is moving into human beings now. This is chapter 45. If there's someone who would like to read this, feel free to volunteer. Otherwise, I'll go ahead and read it. Okay, this one is titled 10 Courses of Wholesome Gamma. Sometimes it's referred to as conduct as well. Okay, Yi Haing, if you would like to read, you're welcome to. Yes, thanks. 10 Courses of Wholesome Gamma. Purity by body, kunda, is threefold. Purity by speech is fourfold. Purity by mind is threefold. And how kunda is purity by body threefold? Here, someone having abandoned the destruction of life abstains from the destruction of life with the rod and the weapon laid aside, diligent and kindly. He resides compassionate towards all living beings. Having abandoned the taking of what is not given, he abstains from taking what is not given. He does not steal the wealth and property of others in the village or in the forest. Having abandoned sexual misconduct, he abstains from sexual misconduct he does not have sexual relations with women who are protected by their mother, father, mother and father, brother, sister, or relatives, who are protected by their teachings, or have a husband whose violation entails a penalty, or even with one already engaged. Is it in this way that purity by body is threefold? And how kunda is purity by speech fourfold? Here, someone having abandoned false speech abstains from false speech. If he's summoned to a council, to an assembly, to his relatives' presence, to his club, or to the court, and questioned as a witness thus, so good man, Tell what you know, then not knowing, he says, I do not know, or knowing, he says, I know, not seeing, he says, I do not see, or see, he says, I see. 
Thus, he does not knowingly speak falsehood for his own benefit, or for another's benefit, or for some insignificant worldly benefit. Having abandoned argumentative speech, he abstains from argumentative speech. Having heard some something here, he does not repeat it elsewhere in order to divide those people from these. Or having heard something elsewhere, he does not repeat repeat it to these people in order to divide them from those. Thus, he is one who reunites those who are divided, a promoter of unity, rejoices in calmness, encourages calmness, a speaker of force that promote calmness. Having abandoned harsh speech, he abstains from harsh speech. He speaks such words as are gentle, pleasing to the ear, and lovable as go to the heart, are courteous, desired by many, and agreeable to many. Having abandoned idle chatter, he abstains from idle chatter. He speaks at a proper time, speaks truth, speaks what is beneficial, speaks on the teachings and the discipline. At a proper time, he speaks such words as are worth recording, reasonable, concise, and beneficial. It is in this way that purity by speech is fourfold. And how is purity by mind threefold? Here, someone is without longing, craving. He does not long crave for the wealth and property of others. Thus, oh, may what belongs to another be mine. He is of goodwill, loving kindness, and his intentions are free of hate. Thus, may these beings live peacefully, free from hostility, harm, and anxiety. He holds right view, wisdom, and has a correct perspective. Thus, there is what is given, sacrificed, and offered. There is fruit and result of wholesome and unwholesome actions. There is this world and the other world. There is mother and the father. There are beings spontaneously reborn. There are in the world ancestics and Brahmins of right conduct and right practice who, having realized this world and the other world for themselves by direct knowledge experience, make them known to others. It is in this way that purity by mind is threefold. These are the 10 courses of wholesome gamma. It is because people engage in these 10 courses of wholesome gamma that the heavenly beings, human beings, and other good destinations are seen. Monks, one possessing these 10 qualities is deposited in heaven as if brought there. Okay, thank you very much. So here, the Buddha is providing these 10 things that you can do to produce wholesome gamma. And some of these track right along with the Eightfold Path and the Five Precepts. If you've studied those in the words of the Buddha, you can see that this is very similar 
to those particular teachings, even though he oftentimes goes into a certain amount of detail in each one of these teachings, particularly these first three with the bodily conduct. These are from the five precepts where he's talking about eliminating the destruction of life, taking what is not given and sexual misconduct. And I go into teaching these in detail in other programs that I share in various courses and retreats that I teach. So those track along with things that you've probably already learned if you've been learning with me for any period of time. And then this one here under purity of speech, this first one is about the fourth precept of speaking falsehoods. And here he's going into detail about how an individual would be sure to always be speaking the truth. And if you know something, you can say that you know it. And if you don't know something, say you don't know it. Oftentimes when an individual has ego or arrogance or pride or that conceit, they feel inhibited from just saying, I don't know. They might feel like they need to have all the answers, but there's a lot of liberation and peace and humbleness in just saying, I don't know. And if you know where the answer can be found, maybe you direct that person to that situation or that information or resource. Or if you need to go find out that information and bring it back to that person, that can help you to cultivate some more wisdom. But if you get comfortable to say, I don't know, then you can ensure that you're preserving the truth. Then the Buddha is talking about argumentative speech here. By the time you get to enlightenment, you're not going to be arguing with anybody. Other people may be interested to argue with you, but you'll see no benefit whatsoever to argue. You won't have craving, desire, attachment in the mind. You won't have anger, hatred, and a will, and you won't have ignorance. And you won't have that conceit where sometimes an individual might argue out of conceit just to prove who's right and who's wrong. So even though other people might think that they're arguing or they want to argue with you, you'll have no interest in being argumentative whatsoever. And then same thing with harsh speech that you'll have learned based on your tone, your tempo, and your word choice. And you'll be practicing gentle speech in all situations and all relationships. Right now, if you have certain cravings, desires, attachments in your relationships, you might find it very challenging to speak gentle. But as you're using breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity to bring down your cravings, desires, attachments, and you're practicing the four foundations of mindfulness, wherever you see discontentedness arising, you cut it off and let it go, then more and more you should be eliminating your cravings, desires, attachments, and noticing that it's becoming easier and easier to speak gently through your tone, tempo, and word choice. This is going to be very helpful in your practice because this is a way that individuals oftentimes cause harm is through their speech. So you would like to look at all communication. During the lifetime of the Buddha, there was only speech, but now we have email, text messages, social media posts, all different kinds of ways that we communicate with speech. It's not just spoken words. There's written communication as well. And you'd like all your speech in such a way that you're practicing the five factors of well-spoken speech. And then ensuring that you're eliminating any idle chatter. This is unbeneficial or unpurposeful speech. So you can get to a point where You're not broadcasting in your relationships, but you're having a conversation. You're having beneficial conversation. And that would help you to purify your speech and practice to produce wholesome conduct through verbal speech. And then the Buddha here talking about these three aspects of purifying the mind. He's talking about eliminating craving, anger, and ignorance. These are the three poisons or the three unwholesome roots so that you can then practice where you're practicing generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. So here when he's talking with someone without a mind of longing, 
This is eliminating craving because the mind, when it has craving, desire, attachment, there's going to be this longing, yearning, and chasing after things. And then a mind that has this goodwill, the opposite of that is ill will, that anger, that hatred, that ill will. That's transforming the mind to now practice loving kindness. And the Buddha is giving details on this. And then an individual who has right view is cultivating wisdom, eliminating that ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. Right view is to understand the Four Noble Truths. That's the breakthrough. Wrong view would be to blame other people for the discontent feelings that you're experiencing. If you blame others for your anger, your sadness, or any other discontent feelings that you're having, this is wrong view. And that's where an individual will tend to push people away, be bitter, harsh, and hostile, and put expectations on individuals. But once you establish right view firmly in your mind, you'll know that any feelings that you're experiencing is a result of your decisions. Anything that you experience in life, whether it's wholesome or unwholesome, you'll know that it's a result of your decisions. And now you can improve your decision making and then experience improved results. And then the Buddha is saying, okay, when you purify the bodily conduct, the verbal conduct and the mental conduct in this way, this is producing wholesome karma. And he gives you details on this throughout various teachings, whether it's the Eightfold Path or the five precepts or what have you. And he's saying, okay, if you're doing these kinds of things, this is what leads to being reborn in the heavenly realm. But the same things that lead to rebirth in the heavenly realm are the same things that lead to enlightenment as well. Always keep in mind that when you see the Buddha talking about the heavenly realm, that's not the ultimate goal. Those beings are still in the cycle of rebirth and they still need to get to enlightenment. And it's not ideal to be in the, in the heavenly realm because those beings tend to be complacent. They only experience pleasant feelings, so they don't have that built-in motivation. They tend to be complacent. Where in the human realm, we experience not only pleasant feelings, but painful feelings and neither painful nor pleasant. In the unenlightened state, those painful feelings and the neither painful nor pleasant are oftentimes the motivation that send somebody towards the direction of choosing to learn and practice to get to enlightenment. So here, the Buddha is just explaining that, yeah, these things lead to rebirth in the heavenly realm. But if you look at the totality of his teachings, you understand the ultimate goal is to get to enlightenment, not to be reborn in the heavenly realm. The same things that lead to rebirth in the heavenly realm are the same things that lead to enlightenment as well. And you would like to continue to cultivate those things in order to produce the enlightened mind in this life. So it looks like Tonka has a question. If there's anyone else who has a question, you can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Go ahead, Tonka. Thank you, Teacher David. I was wondering uh, how anxiety and ill will are um, interconnected and related. I don't really see the, the, the connection here. Sure. So anxiety is that worry right? Oftentimes when you're looking toward the future, you're kind of worrying about something in the future and you can have anxiety. But also if you've been bitter and harsh and hostile towards someone, you might have fear or anxiety that something is going to happen bad for you, right? If you've ever like gone and done something bitter and harsh and hostile with animosity towards someone, you might have noticed that you have anxiety afterwards where there's almost like this fear, this shaking up of the mind due to the anger that you displayed in that situation. Okay, I see. Thank you. Sure, you're welcome. Let me see if we have any other questions anywhere else. All right, I'm not seeing any other questions. So we'll move on to the next chapter, which is chapter 46. Here, this one is titled Five Advantages to One of Wholesome Morality 
end of success and morality. Looks like Donnie's going to read this one. Go ahead, sir. Five advantages to one of wholesome morality and of success in morality. And householders, there are these five advantages to one of wholesome morality and of success in morality. What are they? In the first place, through careful attention to his affairs, he gains much wealth. In the second place, he gets a wholesome reputation for morality and wholesome conduct. In the third place, whatever assembly he approaches, whether of Kathias, Brahmins, householders or aesthetics, he does so with confidence and assurance. In the fourth place, he dies unconfused. In the fifth place, after death, at the breaking up of the body, he arises in a good place, a heavenly world. These are the five advantages to one of wholesome morality and of success in morality. Okay, thank you, Donnie. So here, the Buddha is explaining the advantages or benefits that you're going to experience as a result of improving your moral conduct. And the first one, he says, through careful attention to his affairs, he gains much wealth. Because as you are practicing wholesome moral conduct, people are going to feel more and more comfortable engaging in business with you. Whereas if you're lying, if you're stealing, if you're having harsh and aggressive and hostile speech, you're going to find it difficult to conduct business, whether it's moving up in promotions in your career, or if you work directly with customers, customers aren't going to be interested in dealing with you. So by you improving your moral conduct, which includes eliminating craving, anger, and ignorance, training your mind to be calm and peaceful and courteous and wise and the way that you interact with people, being polite, kind, friendly, respectful, you're going to find that you become more and more wealthy. The more enlightened that you become, you might notice that you acquire more and more wealth. Wealth isn't a problem. It's how you acquire your wealth and what you do with it once you acquire it. So you can actually be enlightened and wealthy at the same time. There's no harm in that. But you would like to ensure that you're not being selfish as you are acquiring wealth and also acquiring wealth in a wholesome way. So by you improving your morality, you'll notice more improvement in your career and in your success in terms of your financial success. Then the Buddha talks about a wholesome reputation here that, yes, as you interact in the community and you're being polite, kind, friendly, respectful, understanding the natural law of karma and practicing that well, you're going to obtain this really wholesome reputation amongst the members in your community. Then the third thing he's talking about here is that when you approach certain communities, here he's using the word assembly, whether katyas, which these individuals in this population of people during the lifetime of the Buddha, they were practicing the Buddhist teachings very closely without having ever really learned his teachings because they were practicing the natural laws of existence. And you can learn these in different ways. And a population of people can kind of share that wisdom with each other and practice in really wholesome ways. Nowadays, in my lifetime, I look to the Thai people as similar as the katyas, that they tend to be practicing the teachings fairly closely in terms of being very polite, kind, friendly, respectful. They're not judgmental. You don't see a lot of aggression, hostility, and bitterness, and anger, and argumentative speech in Thai society. So if you're approaching certain population of people who are into wholesome things like the Katyas or the Brahmins who were Hindu priests or certain householders or aesthetics who are ordained practitioners, you can do so with confidence and assurance because you know you're not doing unwise and immoral things on the side. So now you don't feel ashamed when you go talk to these people who are into wholesome things. You can do so with confidence and assurance no matter who you approach, whether it's your boss, 
whether it's your family, whether it's other people that you interact with, you can have confidence because you know you're not doing unwise and unwholesome things. The fourth thing the Buddha is talking about here that someone who practices wholesome morality is they die unconfused. The opposite of this would be confused. This is oftentimes how we talk about this third poison or this fetter of ignorance or annoying of true reality. We might refer to it as confusion or misunderstanding or delusion. These are all ways that we refer to this particular poison in the mind. So if somebody dies confused, that means you're not going to know what realm you're going to go to. You're not going to know what your rebirth is. And oftentimes people experience a very painful death because they're confused about what might come next and what they're going to experience next. But if you have wisdom and you have cultivated morality, you're unconfused when you get to death because you know that either you're enlightened and you're experiencing the enlightened mental state and there's no rebirth anywhere in any of these five realms. But also if you're not enlightened and you are short of that for any reason, you're unconfused because you know you're absolutely going to experience rebirth and you might know that it's going to be in the human realm or the heavenly realm and you're not experiencing a real painful death as a result of this. So by having moral conduct that is wholesome and wise, an individual dies unconfused. And then the fifth thing that the Buddha is sharing here is that, okay, when you have good wholesome moral conduct, there's this potential for you to be reborn into the heavenly realm. And as I mentioned, just always remember that that's not the ultimate goal, but it's the same things that lead to rebirth in the heavenly realm that lead to enlightenment. So as he's teaching you about how to get to enlightenment, he's also explaining like, okay, well, if you fall short of that, there's the potential to be reborn into the heavenly world. But if you ask me, I would suggest that it'd be much better to be reborn into the human world because here you have much better potential to be able to get to enlightenment in terms of having that built-in motivation. It's much more undesirable for an individual to be reborn in that human world because of the painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant. So that's why the Buddha often refers to the heavenly world as this good place or this improved destination because you're only experiencing pleasant feelings there. But oftentimes beings are complacent there. So these are the five benefits or the five advantages to practicing wholesome morality. And you can learn that morality through the teachings of the Buddha. Let me know what questions you guys have here. You can put them into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Looks like Mayu Lee has a question here on Facebook. I have a question about gossip. Every now and then I would have a conversation discussion with my mom about my sibling's unwholesome decision or action. Is this considered gossip, even though the intention of the conversation was to try to help them? Yes, if your intention is to try to help them and figure out how you can potentially provide them advice or guidance or suggestions, this is not gossip. What gossip is is where you're trying to break someone down and you're trying to damage their reputation. And oftentimes someone is gossiping in order to make themselves look better. And this is gossip or slander. And if you're doing that publicly, this is where oftentimes you experience the unwholesome results of that coming back. If you're having a private conversation with your mom or your other siblings about your family and you guys are trying to figure out how you guys can improve as a family unit, this isn't gossip because your intention there is to try to help and improve. You just need to be very aware of your word choices as you're choosing to talk, that you're not degrading or diminishing anyone, and you're keeping with that intention of looking to help and improve the family unit. Okay, so I'm not seeing any other questions anywhere. 
So let's move to the next chapter. Here you can see my words to help you reflect. I'm not sure, Tonka, if that's a question or if you'd like to read, but either way, you can go ahead and open up your mic and let me know. I could read the next chapter, teacher David. Okay, perfect. This is chapter 47. One is reborn through one's deeds. Monks, beings are the owners of their karma, their heirs of their karma. They have karma as their origin, karma as their relative, karma as their resort. Whatever karma they do, wholesome or unwholesome, they are its heirs. Here, having abandoned the destruction of life, someone abstains from the destruction of life with a rod and weapon laid aside. Dedicated and kindly, he resides compassionate toward all living beings. He does not creep along by body, speech, and mind. His bodily karma is straight. His verbal karma is straight. His mental karma is straight. His destination is straight. His rebirth is straight. But for one, with straight destination and rebirth, I say there is one of two destinations, either the exclusively pleasant heavens or influential families, such as those of affluent Kathayas, affluent Brahmins, or affluent householders, families that are rich with great wealth and property, abandoned gold and silver, abandoned treasures and belongings, abandoned wealth and brain. Thus a being is reborn from a being, one is reborn through one's deeds. When one has been reborn, contacts affect one. In this way, I say that beings are the heirs of their karma. The Tagata spoke of abandoning, of taking what is not given, and abandoning of sexual misconduct with discourses similar to that of abandoning taking life. He also spoke of the fourfold wholesome conduct of speech and the threefold wholesome conduct of mind in the same way. Okay, thank you, Tonka. So here, this first part of this discourse should look familiar to some of you guys who have been studying with me for a while because I share this when I introduce you to the natural law of karma because what the Buddha is essentially saying here is that you create your own karma. Other people can't create karma for you. And remember, karma is cause and effect or action and result, the results of your decisions. It's not mystical or magical. There's no being that's deciding who gets punished or rewarded. The natural law of karma isn't even punishments and rewards. It's not even about who's at fault or who's the blame. It's just helping you see that there's a certain cause or a certain action. And that's going to lead to a certain effect or a certain result. And when you understand and awaken to this natural law, then you'll naturally make wise decisions that produce wholesome results. But when you lack wisdom of this natural law, you're going to make unwise decisions potentially unintentionally just because of the lack of wisdom and now this is going to affect you whether you're aware of it this natural law or not if you make decisions to gossip or slander or steal or lie or have sexual misconduct or kill or any of these kinds of things you're going to experience the results of those decisions but when you awaken to the wisdom that's what we actually mean when we talk about awakening to enlightenment you're awakening to the wisdom of the natural law of karma 
that's the core primary natural law that you're actually learning of this cause and effect or action and result. And here the Buddha is explaining to you that only you can produce karma. It's your decisions that lead to some result, not other people's decisions. But if you make a decision to say, have a life partner or a certain friend, or you choose to work at a certain company, now when you choose to work with that group or you choose that particular life partner or you choose this group of friends now when you guys are together any decisions that those people make now they can affect you but it's based on your choice to be part of that group that's how this is all experienced so that's why you need to be really wise about the friends that you associate with if you have a life partner if you work for a particular company and certain co-workers you're going to need to be wise about those decisions because your decisions are affecting you. That's your karma. Then the Buddha is saying, okay, if you eliminate the destruction of life, and he goes through, as you see towards the end, that this discourse explains that he explains all the same things about those 10 courses of wholesome conduct. He explains them all in the same way, that by you eliminating those things, abandoning this taking of life and all those different things about the bodily, verbal, and mental conduct, that this is helping you to experience this straight gamma or this upright gamma, this wholesome gamma. That's essentially what he's describing here. And then if you're practicing in that way, then if there's rebirth, there's going to be this straight destination, meaning that you're going to experience one of two destinations, either in the exclusively pleasant heavens, which that is where you experience exclusively pleasant feelings, or rebirth into affluent families that are rich, have great wealth and property, abundant gold, silver, abundant treasures, belongings, and abundant wealth and grain. The reason why this is helpful to an individual is because if you're on this journey to get to enlightenment and you're struggling just to be able to get food and clothing and shelter and medical care and things like this, that's going to take a lot of your time that you're not going to be able to study the teachings and meditate and do all these other things potentially because you're just worried about where your next meal is going to come from. But if you're born into an improved existence in the human realm where your family is wealthy and has abundance of resources, this is going to provide you the ability to now study the teachings more deeply. You don't have to work so hard. You can meditate and things like this. But sometimes people who are born into rich affluent families, they walk in the other direction. They walk towards the darkness because of that lack of wisdom. So it's up to you to determine which direction in life you're going to take, either walk towards the darkness or walk towards the light. It's your choices that's going to determine that. But being reborn into a family that has a significant amount of resources will help you in your journey to enlightenment. But that's not to say if you lack resources, you're unable to get to enlightenment. It's just that there's more obstacles for you to overcome and you can overcome those obstacles in your life and now the buddha says okay one that's being reborn no matter where they are whether it's in the human realm or the heavenly realm or any of those other realms you're going to be affected by contact because if you're being reborn you have central desire in the mind there's still craving desire attachment there and now with the mind longing and yearning through the six sense bases of the eyes ears nose tongue and the body and then the mind itself, 
then when you experience contact through these six sense bases due to your cravings desires attachments this is going to affect the mind the mind is going to either experience pleasant feelings painful feelings or neither painful nor pleasant if you're here in the human realm so the buddha is saying okay you're going to be affected because of your rebirth and then he's saying this is how you experience your gamma either in this life or in some future life he talks about this in other teachings that you can't run and hide from your gamma that you're going to experience the results of your decisions whether you make wise or unwise decisions you're going to experience the results of that so it's wise to cultivate wisdom of this natural law and then improve your condition of your mind and your moral conduct through training the mind and cultivating wisdom so that you can extinguish all your unwholesome gamma by making only wise decisions that's producing wholesome gamma so let me know what questions you guys have about this chapter. This is chapter 47 titled, One is Reborn Through One's Deeds. Based on what you do is going to determine your rebirth. Based on what you do in this life is going to determine the condition of your mind at death. And now the condition of your mind at death is the cause and condition that leads to rebirth potentially. So it's based on your actions, either bodily, verbal, or mental, that's going to determine the condition of the mind at the time of death. And if the mind's enlightened, there's no rebirth at all. But if there's still craving, desire, attachment in the mind, then that's the fuel that causes rebirth to be reborn after this life. So it looks like Francis has a question here in Zoom. He's asking... Is telling jokes considered wrong speech or jokingly not saying the truth also wrong speech? So just telling a joke and having fun and being humorous, there's nothing unwise about that. There's nothing unwholesome about that. That if you're choosing to tell a joke or be humorous, this can be very wonderful in a community of people that you're telling jokes. But as the Buddha shares in his teachings, you're not interested in lying while you're telling a joke. So if you're lying as part of your joke, then people will start looking at you as being untrustworthy or unreliable. Or like say some people when they joke, they're very diminishing or degrading to either themselves or to other people. This would be unwise to tell jokes in that way. That it takes a lot more wisdom to tell a wholesome joke that doesn't involve a lie and that doesn't degrade or diminish other people. And as you learn how to tell jokes like that, then you might find that it's actually more helpful and more conducive to you creating wonderful relationships. So there's no harm in telling jokes. Even the Buddha tells jokes and enlightened beings will tell jokes as well, but they do it in a way that is wholesome and that is wise so that it produces wholesome results for you. Let's see, that looks like all of our questions for this particular chapter. So let's move on to the next one, which is chapter 48. Okay, this one is titled, Three Surpassing Respects of, whatever this word is, people. This is a population of people. Okay, so I guess I'll go ahead and read this one. I don't see any hands yet. Oh, there we go. Yi Hang, if you'd like to read this one, go for it. Three surpassing respects of people, monks. In three respects, the people of Uttaraguru surpass the heavenly beings, and the people of Japdipa, what three? They are without selfishness and possessiveness. Their lifespan is fixed, and their living conditions are exceptional. In these three respects, 
the people of Uttaraguru surpass the heavenly beings and the people of Japdipa. In three respects, the people of Japdipa surpass the people of Uttaraguru and the heavenly beings. What three? They are heroes, they are mindful, and there is the living of the spiritual life here. In these three respects, the people of Japdipa surpass the people of Uttaraguru and the heavenly beings. Okay, thank you so much. So here you can see the Buddha is talking about existence in the human realm surpassing the existence in heavenly realm. That there's certain qualities that you can cultivate here in the human realm that surpasses that of what's in the heavenly realm. Oftentimes people have craving, desire, attachment to be reborn in heaven. But as I share throughout all the various courses and retreats and programs that I teach, that that's not an ideal existence, that it's the human realm that is the ideal existence. And here the Buddha is sharing a few qualities that you can see that are very helpful for individuals in the human realm. And where you see this, this is helping you to understand what to cultivate. So here, where he's talking about individuals are without selfishness and possessiveness, this is an individual who's practicing generosity, the giving and sharing of their time, effort, energy, and resources without any expectation of anything in return. And you would like to cultivate that because that's going to help you eliminate craving, desire, attachment. So this will help you improve the condition of your mind, the condition of your life, and ultimately help you get to enlightenment. And then he's talking about their lifespan is fixed meaning that they have a certain amount of lifespan. And then there's the living conditions are exceptional in terms of how they live, maybe the cleanliness or the resources that are available and things of that nature, and even how they interact with one another. He's saying, okay, this is the way that you would like to essentially live. And he's talking just generally and broadly here. And then the other qualities that he's talking about is he's talking about these individuals being heroes, you know, kind of helping other people and that they are mindful, meaning that they're aware of their mind, they've cultivated their mind, they have this awareness of the mind, and there is living of the spiritual life here, meaning this pure life, this life of the path to enlightenment and cultivating the mind. So he's saying beings in this particular group or population of people, they're cultivating their mind and they're training their mind on the path to enlightenment. And this is ideal, right? Where in the heavenly realm, they tend to not do that because they're complacent. But here in this population of human beings, he's saying, hey, they're living this pure life. They're cultivating their mind, cultivating wisdom and making their progress towards the enlightened mind and the enlightened mental state. So these are all things that it would be wise for you to cultivate as well. So let me know what questions you guys have either in Facebook, YouTube or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. All right, Donnie, if you'd like to go ahead. Thank you, Teacher David. Um, can I check, how is having a fixed lifespan better than, or almost superior than, let's say, beings and heavenly beings or the other people? Yeah, what I'm thinking that the Buddha is referring to here is that when you're practicing the wholesome moral conduct and you're understanding the natural law of gamma, that you have a kind of a certain amount of lifespan that is going to be helpful. Like 
if you say were unwise in your decision making and you were killing or stealing or having sexual misconduct, maybe you die at the age of 20 or 30 or 25 or 35 where your lifespan is not necessarily long term. And now you have less and less opportunity to be able to get to enlightenment because you have such a short time frame in this human realm. Where here, what I think he's basically talking about is these individuals are practicing in such a way that they're having the extended amount of life where they actually have time to cultivate their mind and ultimately get to enlightenment. My understanding of the heavenly realm is that those beings have a very long lifespan where some of those beings can have you know 500 years or even more in the heavenly realm. But because of their complacency, they oftentimes aren't cultivating their mind. So that even 500 years, okay, great. But nonetheless, they're not getting to enlightenment. But here, I think what he's referring to is having a longer period of time to be able to cultivate the mind and get to enlightenment. Thank you, teacher. Yeah, you're welcome. Let me see what other questions we have here. Looks like Mayuli is asking a question. It might be similar to what Donnie was just asking. It says, what does the Buddha mean their lifespan is fixed? Does this mean once they reach certain lifespan, they will die without going through pain? Okay, so you just heard my answer there, Mayuli. So it sounds like that was a similar question. Okay, I'm not seeing any other questions anywhere. So let's move on to the next chapter, which is chapter 49. Is there someone who would like to read this? Okay. All right, go ahead, Donnie. Birth is the origin of discontentedness, the union of three things. Monks, the conception of an embroil in a womb takes place through the union of three things. Here, there's the union of the mother and father, but it's not the mother's season and the consciousness or mind to be reborn is not present. In this case, there is no conception of an embryo in a womb. Here, there is the union of the mother and father, and it's the mother's season. But the consciousness or mind to be reborn is not present. In this case, too, there is no conception of an embryo in the womb. But when there is the union of the mother and father, and it is the mother's season, and the consciousness or mind to be reborn is present through the union of these three things, the conception of an end, embryo in a womb takes place. The mother then carries the embryo in her womb for nine or ten months with much anxiety as a heavy burden. Then at the end of nine or ten months, the mother gives birth with much anxiety as a heavy burden. Then when the child is born, she nourishes it with her own blood. For the mother's breast milk is called blood in the noble one's discipline. When he grows up and he sends bases mature, the child plays at such a game such as toy plows, tape cat, somersault, toy mill, toy measures, toy cards, and toy bow and arrow. When he grows up and his sense basis matures still further, the youth enjoys himself provided and endowed with the five chords of sensual pleasure. The forms recognizable by the ear, eye, sounds recognizable by the ear, odors recognizable by the nose, flavors recognizable by the tongue, physical objects recognizable by the body that are wished for, desired, agreeable and likable, connected with the sensual desire and a provocation of craving. On seeing a form with the eye, he craves after if it is pleasing, he dislikes it if it is unpleasing. He resides with mindfulness of the body unestablished with a limited mind 
and he does not understand as it actually is the liberation of mind and liberation by wisdom, wherein those evil unwholesome states cease without reminder. Engaged as he is in favoring and opposing, whatever feeling he feels, whatever pleasant or painful, or neither pleasant nor pleasant, he delights in that feeling, welcomes it and remains holding to it. And he does so, excitement arises in him. Now excitement in feelings is clinging. If he's clinging as condition, existence comes to be. With existence as condition, birth. With birth as condition, aging and death, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure and despair come to be. Such is the origin of this whole mess of discontentedness. On hearing a sound with the ear, on smelling an odor with the nose, on tasting a flavor with the tongue, on touching a physical object with the body, on recognizing a mental object with the body, it craves after it. If it is pleasing, it dislikes it. If it is unpleasing, it resides with mindfulness of the body unestablished, with limited mind, and he does not understand as it actually is the liberation of mind and liberation by wisdom, when those evil unwholesome states are eliminated without reminder. Engage as he is in favoring and opposing whatever feeling he feels, whatever pleasant or painful or neither painful nor pleasant, he delights in that feeling, welcomes it and remains holding to it. As he does so, excitement arises in him. Now excitement in feeling is clinging. With his clinging as condition, existence come to be, with existence as condition, birth, with birth as condition, aging and death, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure and despair come to be. Such is the origin of this whole mess of discontentedness. Okay, thank you, Donnie. This is a really great discourse to help you understand how a being comes into the world and then experiences dependent origination and ultimately getting to a point where one cause leads to the next, to the next, to the next. If you guys have studied dependent origination with me, I've shared with you guys those 12 interlinking steps that leads to rebirth and ultimately to discontentedness. And here the Buddha is doing that a bit more in story format to be able to help you see this. So this first part, he's explaining how a human being comes into existence. And here, this is very helpful for students during his lifetime because students wouldn't have necessarily known this. 2,500 years ago, they didn't have the same educational systems that we have today where we study biology in science classes, where we were going through elementary or middle or high school or primary or secondary school or college or university, we would have studied those kinds of things. Where here, the Buddha is helping his students to understand this. These are things that the Buddha understood through his development of his mind. He understood how beings come into the world without having scientific experiments and being able to inject cameras and microscopes and all those things that we have nowadays. He understood this 2,500 years ago, which is amazing that he had that type of wisdom and insight. So he's explaining three things need to come together in order to get to a point where a human being comes into the world. Nowadays, we understand that there needs to be an egg from a mother, a sperm from a father, and then there needs to be a consciousness. These are the three things. The Buddha is describing that as a union between the mother and father, 
the mother needs to be in season and then there needs to be a consciousness and that's essentially the three things an egg a sperm and a consciousness and this is what then creates an embryo in the womb and then the mother carries this in their womb and the buddha describes with much anxiety and heavy burden this child is born into the world and then they're nourished with this milk from the mother and the buddha refers to this as blood because blood is very nourishing and is a important aspect of life without blood you can't live and the buddha is describing breast milk in that same way but then he starts talking about how the sense bases mature right this is occurring inside the womb but it's also occurring outside the womb too because by this point the being has been born and now when the sense bases come to be and they start playing all these toys now this is where craving desire attachment starts being formed as the mind is experiencing contact through the six sense bases there's certain things that the mind now has agreeable or disagreeable there's certain central desire that really starts kicking in this already exists even at the time of birth that there's central desire but the more contact one experiences and they have these pleasant feelings now more and more cravings start to develop over the course of one's life these are certain wants and expectations the longing and yearning so now through the six sense bases there starts to be this craving of pleasant things and then there's this dislike towards unpleasing things. And this is just because of craving. If you don't have craving, there isn't this liking and disliking. There isn't this favoring and opposing. There isn't this agreeable and disagreeable. But when there's craving in the mind, and the Buddha is describing this being who's aging and maturing, that there's this craving that's starting to come into the mind. And now there's more and more of this favoring and opposing or this agreeable and disagreeable because an individual's mind is being conditioned as they're growing and as they're aging. And this individual doesn't understand the path to enlightenment is what the Buddha is describing here, that they don't understand the four foundations of mindfulness. They have a limited mind. They don't understand this liberation of mind and liberation by wisdom, which is the path to enlightenment. That since they don't understand the path to enlightenment, they continue to engage in this favoring and opposing. And now they start experiencing more and more pleasant feelings, which are conditional pleasant feelings, then the painful feelings, and the neither painful nor pleasant. And the individual might delight in this and welcome it and remain holding to it. That's the clinging. So now as this is occurring, there's certain excitement that arises in the mind as an individual is growing. And now that excitement, the mind starts clinging to these feelings. And this is what then produces continued existence in the world. This is where the Buddha picks up with dependent origination and starts explaining the last part of that. And now that's what ultimately leads to birth, aging, death, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair due to all of these things occurring. And then this is all based on this central desire that is in the mind that we study as part of the 10 fetters. And as long as one is engaged in this favoring and opposing, then an individual is going to cling to those feelings and now through clinging to that excitement and wanting it to continue over and over and over and over again, the mind ultimately ends up in discontentedness where the mind is experiencing conditioned pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant. And this is what's keeping this whole cycle of rebirth 
for an individual continuing over and over and over again. So you can dismantle all of this by cultivating wisdom, training the mind to eliminate central desire, no longer clinging and holding on to these things. And the Buddha is providing you the tools and techniques to be able to know how to actually do that and accomplish that through training of the mind. So let me know what questions you guys have here. This is chapter 49. Birth is the origin of discontentedness, the union of three things. If there's birth, there's going to be discontentedness. So let me know what questions you have in either Facebook, YouTube, or in Zoom. Looks like Francis has a question. Go ahead, sir. Okay, I have a question on the, uh, the first part of it where they say that about consciousness. When there's a union of the mother and father at the mother's season, and the consciousness of mind will be born in present. So my question about the consciousness of mind will be born in present. This this mind actually belongs to the mind of the person who just uh, died, or, or who 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 is this uh, this identity of the mind? It's definitely not the father, not the mother, but who is it? So if there's a being who has craving, desire, attachment at the time of death, that craving, desire, attachment is the fuel that creates the spark where now there's a new consciousness that gets created. And now with that new consciousness, it needs to find an existence. And depending on its gamma, is going to determine which realm, either hell, animal, afflicted spirit, human, or heavenly realm. Here, the Buddha is talking about the human realm. So this consciousness that is now been produced based on the craving, desire, attachment of a previous being, it's going to find a physical form, in this case, a human being, to be able to be reborn. So this is a completely new being that's coming into the world, a new consciousness, which is finding a new being. Okay, I got it. Thank you so much, David. Yes, you're welcome. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere else. So we've got this one last chapter for today, chapter 50. And I'm not going to have you guys read this because this is the Buddha explaining how a being comes into existence, the, the real detail. The first chapter that we just read there, chapter 49, that's explaining the union of three things where there's the egg, the sperm, and the consciousness. The Buddha is explaining that. Where here, what he's going through is using language from words that existed in the past to explain the utter detail of exactly how a being comes in to a mother's womb. And this is amazing that the Buddha understood these things. We understand these things through modern language. So this isn't going to necessarily help you that you've understood this through biology if you've learned this or if you experienced childbirth through being a mother or a father. You might understand detail based on the modern language that we use, but here the Buddha is helping his students to understand how a being comes into the world because this is wisdom that individuals wouldn't have necessarily understood 2,500 years ago. And it's amazing that he understood this level of detail back then. So if anybody read this prior to class and you have questions, let me know and I'll answer those questions for you. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. So I'll just end class by thanking all of you guys for joining and invite you to join for our future class where next Saturday I'm going to be sharing the next 10 chapters. Chapters 
51 through chapter 60. That's what we'll be studying next. So you can read those before class and or after class and it'll help you because you'll have the words of the Buddha, you have the reference to go back to the original source teachings in the Pali Canon, and you have the words from me to reflect on. So you can study those ahead of time or after class if you like to fully help you understand the individual discourses from the Buddha. Then tomorrow in our group learning program, I'm going to be in volume one, chapter 19, which is titled The Difficult Human Existence, Sickness, Aging, and Death. This is where I'm going to be talking about the life story of the Buddha and these motivations that he experienced in order to move towards enlightenment on his journey to enlightenment through observing sickness, aging, and death. And we're even going to be talking about how to deal with sickness, aging, and death because oftentimes that's a challenging time for a human being, either based on their own sickness, aging, and death or the sickness, aging, and death of the people around them. So you're welcome to attend that in the morning when I teach either at the temple or in the evening when I teach from home. And then tomorrow at 3 p.m. Thai time, I'm going to be starting a retreat, which is a retreat that's going to teach you everything you need in order to get to the first stage of enlightenment. I'm going to be teaching that from Sunday all the way to Friday. You're going to be able to see that in Facebook, YouTube, or in Zoom. You're welcome to come in and attend by Zoom. This is going to be recorded, so if you can't attend live for any reason, you can uh, listen to the replay on YouTube or Facebook, and eventually it'll make its way to the podcast. So tomorrow on Sunday, it's a session from 3 to 5 p.m. that I'm going to be teaching. And then the subsequent days, Monday through Friday, I'm going to be starting at 9 a.m. and I'm going to be teaching up until 12.30. And then there's going to be an evening session from 6.30 until 8.30 in the evening. So depending on what time zone you're in, you'll be seeing those. On Friday, I'm only going to be teaching up until about 4 o'clock, but all the other days there's going to be an evening session. And then from 12.30 to 6.30, we're going to go out and do activities as part of the retreat so that when students are learning in the morning, they can then put the teachings into practice through going out into the local community. We're going to be visiting a hot spring, an elephant sanctuary, an orphanage. We're going to be going to a reservoir, kind of a nature area, and we're going to be having certain events together. So if you're here in Chiang Mai, you're welcome to attend. But even if you're not, you can participate by Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom in any of those live sessions that you're going to see me teaching things like dependent origination. I'm going to be spending an entire class period on that. I'm going to be teaching the six sense bases and the five aggregates, entire class sessions on each one of those. I'm going to be spending an entire class session on understanding personal existence view and understanding what that is, the symptoms, the way to eliminate it, and how to know when you have eliminated it, as well as doubt and wrong observances and wrong behaviors. So this is going to help you collect up all the teachings that you need in order to get to the first stage of enlightenment. I'm going to be penetrating into right view more deeply because there's right view related to the Four Noble Truths, but there's also right view that you need to be accomplished in view. We're going to be talking about accomplishment and generosity and various things like that. So you won't necessarily be in the first stage of enlightenment by the end of that retreat, but it's all the teachings contained in one retreat that one would need to be able to get to the first stage of enlightenment. So the first two and a half days, there's a lot of foundational teachings, but then the last two and a half days are all the unique things that you need and the tools and the techniques and the wisdom to be able to get to the first stage of enlightenment.
And then on Wednesday, I'm going to be sharing meditation with you guys like I typically do through guided meditation. So you're welcome to join all these different things over the next week. You're going to see a lot of live streams, a lot of Zoom and things like this because I'm going to be teaching a lot over the coming week. And then, of course, we have our regular classes on Sunday, Wednesday and Saturday. So potentially I'll see you guys in one of these future classes. You're always welcome to join and learn. In the meantime, have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.